Foundation, how are you feeling? Good, good, good. Have one more question for you. You know the drill. Are you ready for God's word? Yes. I think this is going to be the message that we record and put online, third service. I just really feel like, like um, there was something missing in first and second, and, and God's just working this message out more and more and more. And you say, well, Pastor, um, why is that? I, I don't know. Sometimes the messages just, you can just tell, like God is, is, is not done. And he's just refining it. And so I'm really, really excited about, about today's message because it kicks off our sermon series um, for Resurrection Sunday. And those are always big sermon series because we pray and we, we bathe it in prayer and we ask the Holy Spirit to anoint it so that Resurrection Sunday will be next level. Amen. And so King Jesus. I want you to be praying about it. I want you to change your, uh, your different social media platforms and, and use this as a banner. Use this as an opportunity to reach out and remind people that Christ is coming soon. Amen. You know, when, when we have uh, that in mind, when we look towards heaven, it changes the way we live on earth. Isn't that true? Let me ask you a very important question. If you if you felt you were going to meet Jesus tomorrow, how would you live today? Oh, man, it would change everything. It, you might be tempted to say, I would change nothing. I'd keep on doing what I'm doing. No, no, I could always improve. If, if I'm going to meet the king, I can always tidy up. I can always put my best foot forward. Amen. And so when we look towards heaven and we understand that the king of glory is returning, that he could split the sky wide open at any moment, it changes our lives. It changes our lives. So King Jesus, come quickly. And in fact, he is coming. Now, today we're going to talk about a very, very important topic. A topic we've all prayed for, I'm sure. Because it's in every Christian's heart to see revival, is it not? Come on, how many of us have ever prayed for revival in our home, in our life, in our country? Raise your hand if you've ever prayed for revival. I want to see those that haven't prayed for revival so I can pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. But... But isn't that our heartbeat? We should want to see God move. We should want to see the goodness of God spread across the earth. And revival is a good thing to pray for. But I want to ask you another question. If you turn off, turn off the lights, if the light goes out, what happens? Darkness invades. But the moment that light enters the room, it dispels darkness. It confronts darkness. It pierces darkness. Why? Because that's the nature of light. And it reminds me of what our Savior King said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Don't put your light under a bush or under a bushel. Oh, no. I've heard it different ways saying, because I was in children's church for a long time, and I can remember singing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. See, I was raised right. I always say that, and some of you think, oh, are you saying something? No, I'm telling you, raise your children right. You say, I wasn't raised that way. That's okay. You're here now. But raise your children this way. Amen? Make a vow. Lord, I'm going to raise my children in the ways 
of the Lord. I'm going to have them learn the songs. I'm going to have them learn what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the light of the world. You are the light of the world. This is what David meant when he said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus said, I might have light, that you would no longer stumble in darkness, but that you might have the light of life. And so this is why we sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it, oh no, right? I'm going to shine. Because when we fail to shine, darkness creeps in. I want you to think about this in terms of salt too. Salt is meant to be a preserver, is it not? What are we preserving? We're preserving the culture. We're preserving a better way of life. And when we fail to be salty, when we fail to have an opinion, you mean I'm supposed to have an opinion? No, you're supposed to espouse the opinion given by Almighty God. It's not an opinion, it's truth. It's the truth. And so some people say, but Lord, but pastor, uh, I, I know that the Lord doesn't want me to be argumentative. Are you trying to tell me to go out and just Bible bash somebody? No, it doesn't do any good to Bible beat someone. But you can stand for truth, can you not? You can say, because I love you, I've got to tell you the truth. Let me ask you some, but something. If you love someone, do you tell them truth? Or do you just allow them to continue on in their misguided way. You know, it takes tremendous amount of love to tell someone the tr truth, even if they may not like it. And we as Christians are called to be truth bearers, to speak the truth. People tell me, well, pastor, there's certain things that Jesus never addressed. I said, like what? Like, like lifestyles. He never addressed that. No, in fact, he did. Think about this with me for a second. If you were an FBI agent, this is what I've heard and I've read it and I've understood this many, many years now, and you were uh, dealing with counterfeit, uh, in their counterfeit division, do you study every possible counterfeit? It, it, it'll never end. You'll be studying bills after bill after bill. They focus on the real. If you can identify the real thing backwards and forwards, inside and out, then you know anything that's not real is then counterfeit. Let me ask you an important question. Jesus said about relationships, marriage should be what? Between a man and a woman. He even quoted from the Old Testament passage where it talks about this. Why am I making an issue of this? I'm bringing this forth because Christians are getting confused by the world saying, well, Jesus never addressed it. In fact, he did address it. He's the one that created it. He was the one there that created it. He hearkens back to it. He says, this is marriage. Anything outside of this, I don't care how crazy it gets. If it's between this and something other than what I prescribed, then it's outside and it's not... Marriage. Come on. If you wanted Jesus to address every possibility, we're crazy enough to come up with infinite possibilities. Well, is it between this and a squirrel? Is it between this and a that? Is it between this and... I mean, Jesus said, no, this is what it is. Anything outside is not. Why am I saying this? Because we're called to be light. 
We're called to be salt. We're called to be different. If we want revival, we have to be willing to value the truth. We have to be willing to value the truth. Can I get an amen? Amen. See, the truth is, it doesn't take many to spark revival. The truth is that it takes one, two, three, or four, but people that are committed to seeing God move on his terms, not on ours. See, too many times we say, Lord, conform to me instead of us conforming to him. We want God to change, but he does not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're the ones that need a change. Why are we asking God to change for us? We need a change for him. And say, Lord, I said that last week. We all have things we struggle with. Lord, I'm not going to ask you to excuse them. Lord, change me. Rearrange me. And do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. You say, Pastor, then how does revival take place? It starts first in the individual. See, many times we think that revival just kind of happens by coincidence. We don't really know why or how revival takes place, but we know it just does sometimes. And we think sometimes that we just have to sit around and hope, 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 hope against all hope that somehow we would be privileged enough to experience revival. Do you know revival is a response from God to us? based on what we do. That means we can't do it, but we what? Call for it. How do you call for revival? Well, the Bible's very clear about it. So I want you to be clear on this. It's not an accident. It doesn't happen by chance. We don't just sit around waiting for it. We should call for it and live as if we desire God to move. How are we to live this way? Is it possible? Absolutely it's possible. In fact, there have been at least four great revivals or awakenings in our our country's history. Did you know that? There was the first great awakening, the second and the third, and then the revival of the 1900s or the 20th century. You say, Pastor, are you sure? Some would count as many as six. But I want to I want to highlight something about the first Great Awakening. Do you want to hear about the Great Awakenings? I can tell you that the first Great Awakening, according to history, took place between 1730s and the 40s. It spanned it over 20 years. And it started with one faithful man preaching the Word of God. Do you realize that his preaching was not not something that was out of this world? It was just firmly grounded in God's Word. You know who that man was? Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a young pastor that preached his most famous sermon. He would go around the country preaching the same sermon. Man, that's, that's cool. I would love to just preach the same sermon over and over. But he wasn't just a pastor. He was an evangelist. So he traveled from city to city. And his sermon was called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Think about that today. He would be canceled today. Oh, man, every news station would be up in arms. The audacity of this preacher calling people sinners and bringing forth conviction. But do you realize if we want revival, we must be willing to change, to meet God on his terms, not to have God change for our terms. Amen. 
And so I want us to get comfortable with this thought because we are living in a society that says, how dare someone ask you to change? No, we all have to change. My sin may not be yours, but it's the same and we should change for God. You say, Pastor, I can't change. I agree with you. I can't either. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to, let, me, let me share a little bit more about these revivals because they had a couple of things. They had repentance. They had prayer. They had a divine desire to see God's presence and a belief that he was coming at any moment. And so it changed their lives. And so Jonathan Edward was joined very quickly by a man called George Whitfield who also preached. And together they started to spark something in two more brothers, two brothers by the names of John and Charles what? Wesley. And they started the Methodist movement. And boy, it was an amazing time in American history. It spread throughout the colonies and over into England. And, and it was a great awakening. You want to know that wasn't the first? I mean, that was the first, but it wouldn't be the last. In the 1820s and then all the way to the 1950s, now it's spreading over 30, 40 years. In the very next century, there was a man by the name of Charles Finney. He led the second great awakening. The third great awakening was led by a humble preacher by the name of D.L. Moody. He was said to be so uneducated in the sense that, that he would butcher words and he would, he, would, uh, he would leave those that were sophisticated, educated people blushing at how poorly he would speak sometimes, but he had the power of the Spirit of God. And D.L. Moody led the third great awakening. You want to know when the fourth great awakening took place or the fourth great revival happened almost a hundred years ago after World War II when a young, skinny preacher from the Carolinas stood up and started calling America to repentance and to accept Jesus as their Savior. You know him as Billy Graham. In 1949, he burst onto the scene by the power of the Holy Spirit at the great Los Angeles revival. And the Los Angeles revival would spread to the Jesus movement of the West Coast that called literally millions to salvation. And out of the hippie movement, declaring there is one way to heaven and his name is Jesus. Amen. This is beautiful. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to know God has been so gracious with our nation. He gives us revival about every 70 years. Can I tell you we're due for one? Every 50 to 70 years he's been bringing revival. Do you sense it percolating? But I want you to know what the condition for revival is so that you can invoke it. You might say, Lord, come and move in our midst. Amen. Revival is coming. And so you say, okay, pastor, what does it take? It takes hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is part of the value system, the declaration of Jesus Christ as he stepped onto the scene and he said, my kingdom will not be a kingdom of this world. It will be a heavenly kingdom. The world might say, blessed are those who are ambitious. 
Blessed are those that don't take no for an answer. Blessed are those who don't quit. Blessed are those that find a way and make it happen. Isn't that what the world tells us? Yet Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Filled. They will be filled. Let me ask you a question. Filled with what? Filled with what? Filled with the mighty spirit of the living God. If you want revival, don't you need the spirit of God to do it? Can you bring revival? You can call for it, but only God sends it. And he brings revival by the spirit of the living God. And how are we to be filled with that spirit of the living God? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Connect these dots. We keep talking about the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. But what's his first name? Come on. What a concept that he would value righteousness. <laughs> Notice what he's saying. Doesn't mean you have to be righteous. You can't be righteous, but you've got to want it bad. You've got to hunger and thirst for it so bad that the Spirit of God fills you and he makes you righteous. Can we live this life in our own strength? No, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And the, and the Holy Spirit values what? Holiness. Holiness. People think that the Spirit will move when there's all sorts of sin around. And we have no desire for holiness. He values holiness. What a concept, amen? Listen, listen to the most famous verse outlining exactly what's needed for revival. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Come on, we've all heard this verse. I want to give you new eyes, to see it with new eyes. And for us to dedicate ourselves to this. Listen to what it says. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and, and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. So God is saying, if this happens, then this will happen. It's an if-then statement, which makes it what? Conditional. Conditional. Come on, parents. Anyone ever do an if-then statement, a conditional statement with your children? If you clean your room, then you can go out with your friends. If you take out the trash, do all your chores, then you can go to the movies. Right? How about this? If you save so much, then I will give you the rest. And you can buy a car, you can buy that, whatever it is that you're... If you make A's, if you pass your classes, if... Now let me ask you, what if you were not to keep up your end of the deal. What does that teach them? It means nothing. What if they don't keep up their end of the deal and you just give it to them anyway? What does that do? Someone in first service says, you've taught them nothing. No, actually, you've taught them a very bad thing. You've taught them that there's no consequences. There's no accountability. Does that work in the real world? It might work in your home, but sooner or later, they're going to be very rudely awakened when they realize that the real world isn't going to let them fly with that. 
that they've got to keep up their part of the bargain if they're going to get paid, right? Can you imagine going to your boss, go, I know I didn't show up to work for the last month, but I'm here to pick up my paycheck. Say, no, that's not the way it works. Well, that's what my daddy would do. Well, then go ask him to pay you, right? Now, so, so what is God saying here? Now, I want you to focus on this. Is he making you do some kind of sophisticated rocket science to get his blessing? Is it a list of 100 things? Is it 1,000 things? Is it 20 things? How many? Four things. But before we go into those four things, notice what he says. If my people, which are called by my name, pay very close attention to that because we're the ones called to be holy. Sometimes we focus on the world and we say, but the world is going, you know, here and there and they're doing this and they're doing that. They're not called by God's name. You are. I am. When did the children of God first become Christians or be called Christians? The Bible says in the book of Acts, they were first called Christians early on in history at the, at the church of Antioch. Before that, they were called people of the way. Why were they called people of the way? Because Jesus said, I am the, the truth and the life. That's why during the Jesus revolution of the 70s, 60s and 70s, they would point one finger up. What did that mean? One way, and his name is Jesus. And so watch, they were people of the way, but instead of saying people of the way, it was easier just to say, hey, you Christians, you follow Christ. And because you follow Christ, you represent Christ, therefore you're called a Christian. So when my people, if my people who are called by my name, that means us Christians, shall humble themselves, point number one, humility. You realize David understood this? And I want to hearken to David because some of us have been here, some of us may be here now. Well, we've lost our way some. He lost his way. He was really struggling. Now I'm speaking to someone here who might be sick and tired of being Come on, say it with me. I'm speaking to someone here who's sick and tired of being sick and tired, who can look over life and say, Lord, I know there's more to it. I know that you have a desire to set me on fire, God. I don't want to exist day after day doing the same old thing, going and working for the man when I know that I serve an awesome living God and I want to fail you, Lord. Oh, come on. I got one life to live for you, Lord. One, I don't have many. God, I've already wasted, I'm speaking for me, 50 years, God. Oh, it's now or never. Let's do this, God. And God is saying that if my people who were called by my name would humble themselves, oh, okay, Lord, I want to humble myself. Do you hear what I'm saying? He said, Pastor, why do you get so excited? Because I don't see how you can preach something like this. If my people who were called by my name would humble themselves and pray, then I will do great and glorious, amazing things. Yeah, Lord! Yeah! Yes! I want that! Amen! David understood this, and he was in a dark, lonely, miserable place. Why? Because he had fallen away from the Lord. We'll talk about this in a second. But watch what he says in Psalms 51. This is the language of revival. 
Watch what he says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit. What does it mean to be steadfast? That means stand solid. I don't want to be moving away anymore from you. I don't want to be blown away. I don't want to be confused with the doctrines and the ideas of this world. I want to be rock solid in my faith with you, God. Am I speaking to anyone here? I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't need that. That's the last thing I want. No, I get it. That's the last thing you want when you don't want God messing with your life. I'm, I'm just, let's keep going because some people are going to walk out. Let's, let's keep going. <laughs> do not cast me away from your presence. We'll talk about presence in a, little, in a little bit. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation. We're going to talk about all of this because this is the language of revival. Lord, I want to feel the way I felt when I first became a Christian. Can I get an amen from someone here? I want to feel that again, Lord. I want to know, hold me by your generous spirit. See, David is saying, Lord, I know that revival will break out when you break in. I know revival will break out when I accept you in. When I let you in. See, God it brings conviction so that we might repent. That means change our mind, change things in our lives, and begin to pursue him that he might join us there in his work that he has for us. Notice what it says. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, humility is a big deal. Listen to what Peter says in case you think that's only an Old Testament thing. God says in the book of 1 Peter, God resists the proud. Do you realize that God even hates a proud look? He hates it. Pride is so damaging, but watch what he loves. He says, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. That means when we humble ourselves, God will bring revival. But I want you to notice what he says. He says, but God gives grace. Do you realize that the word grace is the word in the New Testament? It's charis in the Greek. Charis is where we get charismata or charisma. It means a move of the Spirit. So when we humble ourselves, who moves? The Spirit. Isn't that what Jesus says? He says, you will be filled. Humble yourself, you'll be moved, you'll be filled. The Spirit begins to do things that we couldn't do. How about the book of James says this, draw near to God. There it is again. Come close to God. Get in his presence. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now I'm going to ask you a very, very, very straightforward question. How many of us, when we read that verse, just feel a little uncomfortable? Like, man, this is, he's, he's like a demanding God. Anyone? No, I mean, come on. I, I know it's hard to admit it, but as Americans, because we, we've been trained over the last so many years not to read these kind of passages. 
When was the last time you saw some of the big pastors in America just go, hey, we're going to go to James chapter 4, 8 through 10, and then really spend some time, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Yeah, but he's talking to the world. No, he's not. He's talking to us as Christians. Look, if you feel negative towards that, you've missed it. You know what the negative is? Is to not be told and to continue trying to live your best life not knowing that you need to repent. You got pastors saying, hey, your best life, your best life, your best life, your best life is lived when you humble yourself before God. How do you humble yourself before God? You've got to say, Lord, I'm not all that plus a bag of chips. I'm really not. <laughs> Amen. Anyone can admit that? I'm not all that. I need, to, I need to change some things. I need to stop being double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? Any double-minded people in the room? No, I mean, Lord, one minute I want to serve you, the next minute I don't. One minute I want to be super holy, the next minute I kind of want to do what I want to do. God, would you help me with that double? But if you never bring it to the Lord, you just keep being. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's a good thing to hear the truth of God. At least that's what's changed me. And so you have this idea here where he says, you need a change. Can I tell you something? I feel like America is waking up from a false prosperity gospel hangover. And America has had enough of that. Can I just preach frankly to you? What do I mean we've had enough of that? Come on. Stop trying to tell me that all I need is sickly, sweet prosperity. I don't need that. I know I've got a real problem and it's me. I need the forgiving power of Jesus Christ. I need the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ where he makes me, what, die to myself and I look more like him every day so that when I wake up, I have a holy confidence. Because at the end of the day, the Bible says that faith is what? Confidence and assurance. And how am I going to have confidence and assurance if I just keep explaining my sin away and naming and claiming more stuff? I don't need more stuff. I, I live in America. I got enough stuff. My stuff is the problem. Amen. I need Jesus. And, and this is where D.O. Moody, that's where he focused his preaching. You realize D.O. Moody was having a huge gathering. And he was inviting people. And people came from all over the world, including from Europe. And he put them up in the dormitories there at the college that he was, he was in charge of. And as was his campus, he went through the dormitory hallways praying for the students. But now he's praying for people that were attending his conference. And he noticed their, their dress shoes outside the door. Every one of them had dress shoes outside the door. And so he inquired and he realized that in Europe, you put your dress shoes outside the door so the servants will come by and what? Shine them. He says, we don't have servants here. He's like, what are we going to do? He says, I know what. I'll do it. And so he went painstakingly and cleaned every shoe from every attendant filling those dorm rooms. 
We never would have known that he did that except for a friend came looking for him. Finding him hard at work cleaning the shoes. He was so taken by it that they spent half the night together cleaning the shoes together. And he later tells the story that it reminded him of a greater servant who washed his disciples' feet and he realized, Lord, now I know he's not a great preacher leading revival. He's a humble servant being used by the Holy Spirit, bringing awakening to a nation that needs to walk in humility. Do you hear me? This is what brings revival. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Listen to what the Bible says. He says, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. Did you hear that? To revive. Someone sick and tired of being sick and tired, get humble and I guarantee you God will revive you. God will begin to pour out a spirit on you that you're not able to receive all on your own. You're going to have to share it with others. And that's when revival spreads to your family. And then it spreads to your neighborhood. And then it spreads to your church. Number two, prayer. Do you realize that God answers prayer and it's our birthright as saints? And it's one of the most powerful things we can do. The Bible says when you pray in faith, you can move mountains. The Bible says when you pray on God's word, it shall be done for you. That's it. No quit. It shall be done. But pastor, how do I know God's word? When we humble and walk in obedience, then the Holy Spirit will begin to move you. And your prayers just take on a whole new... But I get it. Prayer, you say, pastor, just, what if I'm not there yet? Then prayer is a way to get you there. I can tell you a story. When I was full of pride and full of fear, do you realize that pride and fear go hand in hand? When you see a man proud and he's a, a fighter and he's a proud fighter, he's covering up his insecurity. He doesn't think he's as good as he's projecting. When you see a business person super proud, they're trying to compensate for something. They're either trying to prove themselves to themselves, to a parent, to a father, to a, they're, they're trying to prove themselves to society. There's this pride that is covering up insecurity. But humility, listen to me very closely, eradicates insecurity and pride. Insecurity. Uh, humility is, Lord, I know I'm not all that, but I know you are. So I put my focus on you. And so watch, I was a young man and uh, a pastor friend of my dad challenged me. He said, you're called to preach the gospel and you're never going to be happy until you give your life to the Lord. In my pride, I said, thank you. I'll take it under advisement. He looks at my wife, he says, he's in denial, but you know I'm telling the truth. And in a moment, she received the, the, the prophetic word. And she starts saying, yes, I do. I've known him for a while. I go, oh my goodness, this is an American dream killer right here. <laughs> he is. I never, I told the Lord, I'll do anything for you except be a pastor because I saw how hard it was for my father. And in my insecurity, my fear, I didn't think I had what it took. And I didn't think God would be faithful enough to watch over me. 
So I went to make it on my own. So I'll serve you on the side. But God says, I have something so much more beautiful for you. I have great things in store for you. And I'm not saying you're called to be a pastor, but I am saying, trust God, it'll be better than you think. I promise you it'll be better than you think. So he says, you have one life to live for your king. Don't waste it. Another friend of my, my dad's at that same camp comes up and goes, hey, I heard about your conversation with Pastor David. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Y'all just talking about me? He says, what are you so scared of? And in my pride, again, you don't know where my dad has put us. We've served in the hardest neighborhoods, inner city, Houston, San Antonio. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of anything. I was so full of pride, yet I was so scared. And he hit it right on the nail. He says, you're scared to death. God will change your plans. I'm like, yeah, I am. So he said, I said, what do I do? He said, pray. He challenged, to pray with, he challenged me and he said he would pray with me for a year. We prayed. I'm walking into Reunion Arena, Promise Keepers. This was 20-something years ago and God hits me right between the eyes with the very first message. I'm so overcome, I leave the arena to go call my wife. Say, I received the word of God. I received it. I prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. I'm coming back into the arena and I'm having this conversation with the Lord. You always call your children by name. Your sheep hear your voice. They recognize it. And today I heard my name. I heard your voice. I say yes. Irrevocably, yes. And I hear, Chris! And I'm walking through the arena and I hear, Chris! And I'm like, okay, Lord. Usually I hear it in, in this region. Like inside. But now I'm hearing it out here. That's kind of, wow, Lord. You're, you're really up in the ante here. And he goes, Chris, up here. I go, Lord. And just then I thought, my dad's right. God has a Mexican accent. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it's brother David Galvan, the one who said, what are you so scared of? He said, you're scared to death. God will change your plans. He's been praying with me. And he's in the second tier of Reunion Arena because he has a church in Dallas and he brought them to the conference. I run to see him because he's calling me up and I run to see him and he's looking down those steep steps of a basketball arena and he says this, I'll never forget it. God confirms his word according to his word with two or three witnesses. Dave, uh, Richard was the first, your wife was the second, I will be the third. That was for you. Preach the gospel. In season and out of season, go do it now, young man. Came back home, changed my whole life, and here we are today. I don't say that to impress you. I say it to impress upon you that God will change things in prayer. And I'm calling forth some patriarchs right now. Some matriarchs. What does it mean to be a patriarch or a matriarch? That means you're a man or a woman that's not just into it for themselves, but is willing to stand at the edge of a family tree and say, Lord, start with me. I'll take responsibility for my family in the humble obedience to your spirit. In humble obedience to your spirit, Lord, I want to pray for every one of my children's children's children. I'll pray for their spouses, Lord. I'll make sure that I'll make sure that your word is read over them. I'll make sure, God, that they, that they value you, Lord, that they know you, that they have someone to come to when they're down 
and they're confused and they're having issues. I'll be there, Lord, as you've been there for me. See, to be a patriarch means that you will pound on the gates of heaven. Think about this, guys. Some of us pray just at dinner time. Come on. That's not the time to pray. I'd much rather you skip dinner prayer and pray an hour and a half in your prayer closet. Because I know some of you get hungry like, Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for everything. Amen. That ain't no prayer. Spend some time in real prayer. What do I mean by pounding on the gates of heaven? I mean a father, a mother saying, Lord, I'm not taking no for an answer. God, I'm getting on my knees and I'm pounding for the children in my family, God. Bring revival to my heart, God. I know I'm lukewarm. I can feel it, God. I have no desire, Lord, but I'm not leaving till you put that desire back in my heart. Give me back the joy of your salvation. Well, that, that's not biblical. That, that's a little too charismatic. I like more the Baptist. Oh, you like the turn and burn style. Come on. I mean, no, 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 this is biblical. You know why it's biblical? Because the Bible gives two stories on how to pray. If a friend comes to you at night and he pounds on your door and you're sound asleep, you're going to tell him, go away. Go to McDonald's. Go to 7-Eleven. Go anywhere else. But Jesus says, if he keeps pounding on that door, I guarantee you'll get up and give him the whole kitchen. He says, that's the way you should pray. Pound on the gates of heaven. He says, if a judge is evil... And a woman comes to him for justice. She'll, he'll send her away. And even an evil judge will send her away. But if she keeps pounding and coming and coming to him and coming to him and saying, I want justice, I want justice, I want justice. He will give her more than she deserves. And if an evil judge can do that, how much more will a great judge do for you? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? Revival makers. How about the presence or the intimacy of God? That's what it means to seek his face. See, a person's face represents them. When you think of a person, do you think of their body? Well, don't answer that. You think of their face because their face represents them. When they come up with these digital IDs, they're going to mark your face. When you look at your iPhone, it looks at your face to let you in. Do you realize that when you, when you stand face to face with somebody, you have to have intimacy? That's what God is saying. If my people who are called with, by my name would humble themselves, pray, seek my face. That means look to be intimate with me. Look to stand this close to me. Do you all know something else? That the more intimate you are with somebody, the more you can read their face. Isn't that true? When we were first married, my wife's favorite question used to be, what are you Oh, you too. You get that question too. Yeah, what are you thinking? And I got, you know, guys think about nothing. That's really hard for a woman to understand because a, a, a mind, the mind of a woman is so amazing compared to the mind of a guy. Guys is like, we're just so one track minded. And sometimes we go to this one place where it's just the nothing space. And that's usually when you ask us, because we have this look you don't know. We're like, you just don't know that look, because you're always thinking about something. You're thinking about the children, you're thinking about the food, you're thinking about this, you're thinking about a hundred things. And guys are just like, I'm just trying to go to my nothing. Anyway, that, that's another story. But now, 
She's amazing. I mean, like she can discern exactly what I'm thinking just by my face. And she goes, that's not true. I'm like, how do you know? <laughs> and she goes, baby, don't think that. I love you. I'm like, wow. But sometimes she'll look at me and I go, don't look at me. You're going to know what I'm th- What if we were that intimate with God? Well, we start to do something and you go, oh, Lord, okay, no, you're right. I'm going to wait on you. Oh, I'm going, I'm, I'm going right. And God goes, no, no. And without him having to say a word because we can tell his face. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? His face also represents his presence, and his presence means that we can trust him because we're used to him being around. But this is the thing. Revival takes place when we say, Lord, no place is off limits for me. I want your presence when I'm scrolling through my phone. Hello. I want your presence when I'm just casually just watching any old thing. You know, these this mechanisms they have in place where they know if you're a man. And they know how to market to you with, with girly videos, if you know what I'm talking about. And God's saying, no, 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 no. My presence is overlooking. Shut that down. My presence is involved when you're DVRing certain movies or you're on Netflix. My presence is there when you're doing your taxes. My presence is there when you deal with your boss. My presence is there when you, come on now, inviting his presence in in every facet because his presence is important. And I want to share something with you. His presence is not just important, it's promised. But first, let's read some verses. Psalms 105 says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. That means always, continually. Deuteronomy 31 says this, I will not leave you or forsake you. Hebrews says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why is it then sometimes do I feel alone, Pastor? Because sometimes we leave him. I'm reminded of an elder friend of ours, Greg Dasher. He had four beautiful little children, two of his own and two he adopted in, uh, in Moscow. He invited my daughter Raquel with him when she was little to Fiesta, Texas. And I said, who's going? Is Julie going? No, it's just me. So you, Greg, are going to take care of the five children. I said, I think not. He says, oh, pastor, have faith. I said, it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of wisdom. Right? He says, then come with. And then we, we went. So now it's three adults to six children. That's a ratio of, of one to two, right? We lost one anyway. <laughs> we did. We get, I mean, it was like a, 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 like a 4th of July weekend. It was crazy. We should have never gone. And next thing you know, the kid is gone. And this is what happened. She had a hold of her father's hand until she started to what? She pulled away, and Greg would take it back, and she would pull away again. Then Greg says, well, stay with me. And she's looking at him. So he would turn back, and she would be looking at him. But then as, as things would be, there's so much distraction. Come on, is there a lot of distraction in this world? Her eyes got off of her father. She started veering off, 
we separated just a little bit, the crowd closed in, and she was lost. Never to be seen of again. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I got y'all. It was two hours. And that will improve your prayer life. You want a better prayer life, lose a kid. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But my goodness, we're crying crying out to the Lord. Some of y'all take it. Dana, I'm just kidding, Dana. He was like, Pastor, that's not funny. (laughs) Absolutely, it's not funny. Um, But can I tell you something? Sometimes we do that to God. It's not that God leaves us. He says, I'll never leave you. The good thing about God is he stands high and lifted up. And all you have to do is lift up your hands and say, Lord, right here, right now, I repent. I cry out to you. I'm seeking your face, God. Where is your face? And I want to return to you. Amen. Amen. Can I get an amen? See, repentance is what we've already talked about. But repentance is coming back to that point of salvation. How many of you remember the day you were saved? Wasn't that an amazing day? It was a day of real contrition, of real remorse, of saying, God, I'm going to leave my way and I want to follow you in your way. The problem is many of us think, well, that was back then. Do you realize that salvation is not just back then? I want to, I want to explain something to you about salvation. Salvation is everything. It's in the past, it's in the present, and it's in the future. In the past, that's justification. You were justified in Christ. You went from darkness to light, from death to life. But in the present, you're being sanctified. Not just justified, you're being sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means you're being transformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. How are you sanctified? Much the same way you're saved. How? You repent. You come to him, you say, Lord, you're showing me some things that I need to stop doing and I need to let your son reign supreme by the power of your Holy Spirit. And do you realize that it will take you into glorification when you are in heaven, it will hold you throughout eternity. Because salvation is past, present, and that's how beautiful salvation is. See, Salvation is not just, ah, something I did. I I got my ticket punched. No, it's what you're doing. You're doing it. That's why God said, if any man care to be my disciple, he must pick up his cross when? In the past? Daily. You must die to yourself every day. See, I died to myself at nine when I wept and I cried and I lamented. I should do that again today. I should have that heart of repentance saying, God, I don't want anything between me and you. Or I'm liable to let go of your hand and bind my wandering heart to thee, for it is prone to wander, said Charles Wesley, in Come Thy Fount. I'm telling you, this is salvation. So you might be here today and you might say, Lord, what do I do? Every day, this is what you do. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh, let that joy sing to me like the day I was saved. Because I'm being saved even today. You're transforming me. You're changing me. Can I get an amen? Amen. You know what this brings? This brings the smile of the Lord. 
This is that famous, famous verse that says, May the Lord, what? Cause his face to shine upon you. When we seek his face, when we repent, when we pray, when we humble ourselves, the shining upon us means God will smile on you. Come on, every father and mother knows what that means when you see your children just making you proud and you smile on them. And God says, at that point, I will revive things. I will do what no one else can do. That's what revival means. Church, I love you with all my heart. This wasn't meant to be a hard message. This was meant to say, there's so much more for us. Fathers, come on, fathers. There's so much more for us. Mothers, come on, mothers. There's so much more for us. We make it more complicated. Lord, here I am. I humble myself. I pray to you. I seek your face and I repent. I want to walk with you. I know, Lord, that that is what the cross is all about. So as we prepare for communion, would you just say, Holy Spirit, speak to me in the quiet chambers of my heart and my soul. Bring me to that place of revival. Bring me to that place, God. Show me those areas that I must address. Come on, guys. Show me those areas that I must humble myself, seek your face, repent. Maybe there's an area in my life where I keep losing my temper, where I keep compromising. I keep doing whatever it is, Lord, right here, right now. I want, I want all of you in Jesus' name. By the power of your finished work on the cross, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I love you. Have a great week.